Right, good morning, church family. How are we doing, okay? Good. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. Okay, hands up if you've watched the movie I Am Legend. Nice, 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 nice. Okay, well done, guys, thank you. Right, this is the important one. Hands up. If you haven't watched the movie I Am Legend, but you really, really want to, and you don't want any spoilers. Wonderful. Excellent. So no one's put their hand up. If you had put your hand up, I would have asked you to put your fingers in your ears and probably hummed the tune to Amazing Grace, so it wouldn't have been a complete waste of time. But I Am Legend stars Will Smith as effectively the only survivor of a pandemic that turns people into zombie vampire creature things. I don't know. His only friend, his only companion, the only thing keeping him from completely going off the deep end is a dog. It's a dog that he was given as a puppy by his wife and his daughter shortly before their helicopter crashed. It's a very sad Very sad movie uh, beginning. Now, my daughter wanted to watch this movie with me recently, and I was, I've got to say, I was a bit reluctant um, because she doesn't do well with sad. She cried when the horse got stuck in the swamp in Never Ending Story. Some of you have seen that. Uh, She was inconsolable in the cinema when Aunt May died. Uh, she, She cried at a stunt show in Disneyland when a guy caught on fire as part of the show. Right, she, she couldn't contain her sorrow uh, about that. She even cried, this, this tells you more about me than her, but she even cried, we were driving along in Fordingbridge and I saw a man walk along and just donk his head slightly on a sign so his hat fell off and he kind of just picked it up and put it back on and I laughed so hard. Um, she cried. She was so sad that she thought the poor man had hurt, her head, hurt his head. Um, which, as I say, tells you more about her than me. She wanted to watch I Am Legend. <laughs> the point is she, my daughter, is a beautiful, gentle, caring soul. And she feels other pain like her own, whether it's real or imagined. And I know how I Am Legend ends. I know that the dog that this guy loves more than life itself is going to die to protect him. I know that. But I thought, it's okay. I'll warn her. I'll prepare her beforehand. So I I sat her down to explain what was going to happen before it happened so that she wouldn't be caught out. She wouldn't be taken by surprise. Uh, I should have known better. I told her straight up, I said, yeah, you can watch this movie, darling, absolutely. Um, but I've got to tell you, the dog dies. That's, that's what happens. And she was like, yeah, so? I said, oh, no, you've got to understand, the, the dog dies. It's, it's really sad. I, you, you don't do well with that. She said, I can handle it. Okay. I said, you won't cry. She said, I won't cry, Dad. Can we just watch the movie, Dad? You're wasting this time. I said, okay. Anyway, we got to the pit where the dog dies. And oh my gosh, she absolutely loses it. Absolutely loses it. With tears pouring from her eyes, <clears throat> she was shouting at the TV. Not what I thought she'd shout. She's shouting, you stupid dog! 
You stupid dog, why have you got to die? Why didn't you stay in the car? Why don't you just let them eat the man? It's all very dramatic. I said, you said you wouldn't cry. She said, I'm not crying. My point is I tried to warn her. (laughs) I tried to prepare her. But the reality of a thing is often much worse than the warning. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, the most significant moment in human history looms large in the background as Jesus tries to prepare his disciples for his coming death. And he does that by pointing out three things that are happening around him. He points to his burial. He points to his betrayal. And he points to his body and blood. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Mark chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 1 to 2 first, just to get a little bit of context. Mark 14, 1 to 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So this is the context bit, okay? As far as the chief priests and the scribes are concerned, Jesus has been going around performing miracles as if he's some kind of Messiah. Forgiving people's sins as if he's somehow God. And almost at every turn, he's publicly making fools of both the political and religious leaders, and they just about had enough of it. They've tried to stir people up against him. They've tried to embarrass him, and they've tried to trap him in his own words, but all to no avail. The only option left to them is to arrest him on trumped-up charges and have him killed. But they can't do it publicly because he has the favour of the people who are expecting great things from him. To add insult to injury, he's just ridden into Jerusalem, the royal city, on a royal steed, just like King David before him, as if he is himself some sort of king. And the people have reacted by laying palm branches down and shouting, Hosanna! Which means something like, save us now! They're looking to him to save them. And they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people think Jesus is the David-like king that they've been expecting. The one who will restore the kingdom of God to Israel. And all this means that the chief priests and the scribes have to deal with Jesus quietly. They need to arrest him in secret so that people don't have time to react. Shifting our focus over to Jesus, it seems that he is supernaturally aware of all of us. The disciples, on the other hand, are blissfully ignorant of what's going on behind closed doors. And their attention is focused on the upcoming festivities of the Passover. So Jesus takes this opportunity, this moment, to prepare his disciples, to sit them down and explain what's about about to happen so that they won't be caught out. They won't be taken by surprise. And he starts by pointing 
to his burial. Let's look at verses three to nine together. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why wasn't this oil, why was this oil wasted like that? But this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of me. Jesus was at the house of Simon the leper. Now in one sense, it's just a detail in terms of setting, but how often do we see Jesus hanging out in this sort of place? You don't get a name like Simon the leper for being really good at hospitality. You get a name like Simon the leper because you either have or have had leprosy. And that's a disease that in that place and time made you a social outcast and and put you at the bottom of the social ladder. This isn't the place where all the cool kids hang out, but it's exactly the type of place that Jesus loves to hang out. And it's in this setting that a woman approaches him and in an act of lavish, unrestrained, and wholehearted worship, anoints his head with a beautifully perfumed oil. Now this wasn't just any oil or perfume, it was it was expensive. It was worth 300 denarii. That's about a year's wages. A year's wages just poured over Jesus' head. But this woman held nothing back from Jesus. Do you see that? She purposely broke the jar that it was contained in. She had no intention of putting a stopper or a lid back on it. She didn't want to just use a little bit. She was going to pour it all out on Jesus. Here's the point though. If she'd done that to anyone other than Jesus, it would have been a lovely gesture, but it would have been foolish. It might have been indulgent. And to some degree, it would have been pretty inappropriate. At the least, it would have been an unwise use of God's provision that most certainly could have been used for better things. But she didn't do it to just any old bloke she did it to Jesus and that changes everything because Jesus alone is worthy of this kind of worship and adoration because he is the Messiah he is God and he is the King and at this moment moved by the Holy Spirit in her this woman gives her all her everything in worship of him And whether she knew it or not, she was outworking two realities in the process. On the one hand, just as oil was poured over the head of David before he was crowned king, so now oil is poured over the head of Jesus before he receives a crown of thorns. And just as oil was poured over the head of the high priest to prepare him for service in the temple, 
Now oil is poured over Jesus, the greater high priest, to prepare him for service in the heavenly temple. On the other hand, Jesus focuses on another reality. For the benefit of the disciples, he points forward to a time when he will no longer be with his disciples. A time when his body would need the sweet-smelling fragrance of the nard to fulfill the Jewish customs for burial of the dead. Perhaps he even had in mind in that moment that, that future time when a group of women would go to his tomb and again want to anoint his body with spices and ointments. The only thing is, they found an empty tomb. They never got to anoint his dead body. All they found was an angel and some grave clothes. This then is the moment his body is being made ready for burial. Do you see that? Normally people are anointed after they've died, but Jesus in this moment is being anointed for what lies ahead of him. And this is the message he was giving to his disciples. Be prepared. This is what's going to happen. I can imagine that the room went completely silent in response to those words. As that knowledge dawned on them. As the intense lavender aroma of the nard probably both soothed and troubled the disciples' hearts at the same time. Jesus himself was moved by this loving act of worship. He says this, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And you know, as I was preparing this message, I had a thought. That aroma, that smell, that fragrant perfume that was anointed on his body, that would have stayed on Jesus for the next few days. It's not like Calvin Klein that disappears after a few hours. This stuff's strong powerful, pungent. When he was betrayed, when he was abused, when he was beaten, maybe even when he was crucified, I wonder if the sweet aroma of this woman's worship moved him, even in those moments. And what about us? Do you know that our worship is a beautiful aroma that pleases King Jesus even today? How are you doing with that? Are you like the woman who held nothing back in her worship? Is your worship lavish, unrestrained and wholehearted? Do you disregard the cost despite how foolish it looks to those around you? Now I'm not just talking about here on a Sunday when we sing worship songs, although I am, I'm talking about pouring out the whole of your life to Jesus as an act of worship. I want you to just take a moment to consider that before God. How are you doing with that? I've had to think about that as I prepared this message. And there are moments when I know I've lacked. I haven't given Jesus my all. I haven't poured out my life as an offering to him. I've tried to put the cork in. I've put the lid back on and keep something back. Let's look at verses 10 to 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. 
And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. It seems like this lavish act of adoration by the woman with the oil is like the final straw for Judas. He's not invested in Jesus' mission. He doesn't recognize who Jesus really is. And we know from elsewhere in scripture that he's been stealing from the cookie jar already. He's been stealing from the, uh, the finances for the group. And now he's just watched a whole year's wages getting washed over Jesus. So he goes off to the chief priest to negotiate a price to capture Jesus, I reckon, in order to make up for it. Think about it. He's missed out. If that, if that nard had been sold, that money would have gone in the bag and Judas would have had the bit off the top. But he missed it because that didn't happen. But he's got a way to get it back, right? And as far as the religious leaders are concerned, this is like their birthday. You know, this guy is giving them Jesus gift wrapped and tied with a bow. So they jump at the chance. This is the very opportunity they've been waiting for. Which leads us to our second point. Jesus prepares the disciples by pointing to his betrayal. Verses 12 to 21. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover and when it was evening he came to the twelve and as they were reclining at table and eating Jesus said truly I say to you one of you will betray me one who is eating with me and they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another is it I and he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Ooh, that suddenly got heavy. Now I don't want to dwell too long on verses 12 to 16, but it is worth saying this. Jesus' instructions about making preparation for the Passover uh, I find them slightly humorous because they're oddly specific and yet strangely vague at the same time. The disciples are to go into the town to look for a man. No name, just a man um, in a city full of thousands of men. That's pretty vague. Um, uh, but this man, he'll be carrying a jar. Uh, it doesn't narrow it down too much, I guess. But contextually, carrying a water jar is likely to have been something that a lady would have done probably wouldn't have seen too many men doing it. So that is oddly specific, isn't it? You've suddenly got a man carrying a water jar and now that's who you're looking out for. I like it. I think the whole thing is a sort of supernatural provision encounter. That's what it feels like to me. Jesus, Jesus is saying, this is already prepared. Just go, and, just go and sort it out. It helps to build a sense that everything 
is going according to God's sovereign will and plan. And it's good to know that, even as we approach this text and understand that Judas betrays Jesus. It's not outside the will of God. It's not separate from the plan of God. Nothing happens outside of God's will. Fast forward to the meal itself then, and things are about to get really uncomfortable for the disciples. Put yourself in that room. Part of the meal that evening involved dipping bread into a bowl in the middle of the table. Uh, in our house, one of my favourite meals is we like to have uh, a type of cheese. What's it called, babe? Camembert. Don't know if you had that. We have baked camembert. It sits in the middle of the table and then we all get stuff and dip it in and have it. I like chicken nuggets. It's a bit weird, I've been told. Chicken nuggets and cheese, it's a win, if you didn't know. Everyone was dipping their bread into the bowl in the middle of the table. And once again, Jesus takes the opportunity to prepare his disciples for what is about to happen. Because as they're all enjoying the meal and they're merrily dipping their bread in the bowl, Jesus just casually mentions that one of them is going to betray them. Where did that come from? No, no one in that room, apart from Judas, is sat there thinking, oh, I wonder who's betraying Jesus today. No one. And Jesus just slips it in. One of you is going to betray me. Imagine the tension in that room. I bet you could hear a pin drop as the realisation of that accusation hit home. You can imagine the disciples worriedly just glancing at one another, wondering, is it, uh, you're always a bit odd. Uh, no, probably not. That's you, I think. Definitely not me. Is it me? I don't think it's me. Which of these men, these brothers, these comrades is a snake, a turncoat, a betrayer? What that must that have been like? The question is, why does Jesus do this? Why point this out at all? It's going to happen. Jesus has, um, Judas has already made the decision. He's going to betray Jesus. Why bother pointing it out? Jesus isn't trying to change Judas's mind or stop him. He knows it's God's will for him to be betrayed. He says so himself. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. It's already written. He knows. The point is to bring what is hidden out into the open. To take what is being done in the shadows and reveal it in the cold light of day. This is what Jesus does, not just here but in our lives. When there are things that are hidden away, tucked away, Jesus likes to bring them out in the open and deal with them face to face. The disciples need to wake up. They need to be in their lookout. They need to see and know what's really going on. Jesus is trying to show them that things are in motion. Time is short and the moment of his death is drawing close. And then each of the disciples in turn asked Jesus, is it me, Jesus? Am I the one who will betray you? What a strange question, really. Surely you know if you're about to betray someone, right? But it is a humble question. It's a fearful, truthful question. Because it recognises the frailty and the fickleness and the sinfulness 
of human nature. To the disciples at that moment, it could have been any one of the 12, even themselves. Are we that humble to come before Jesus and say, is it me? Am I going to mess up? Am I going to let you down, Jesus? What an example that is. So one by one, they submit themselves for Jesus to examine their hearts. Matthew's account of this moment increases the tension by like 100%. Because he recalls that as the last to dip his bread, Judas, knowing full well that it is him who is going to betray Jesus, puts Jesus to the test and outrageously asks the same question. Surely you don't mean me, Jesus. What, what do you mean? Of course it's you. You know it's you. But Jesus calls it out point blank. You said it, he answers. That's what he means. You said it. In front of all the other disciples. Calls him out on it, point blank. Brings it out into the open. Not trying to stop Judas, not trying to change his mind, just brings it out there for everyone to see. I want to remind you this morning that like the disciples, we too need to be alert. We need to be watchful. We need to be on the lookout. Not so much in terms of what others are doing, but in terms of what's going on in our own human hearts. Our human nature is beset with this frailty, fickleness and sinfulness and and we need to come to Jesus regularly to submit our hearts to him so that he can examine them. And there'll be an opportunity for us to do that this morning as we take communion together. Which leads me neatly to the final way Jesus prepared the disciples by pointing to his body and blood. Verse 22 to 25. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this section climaxes with the account of the Last Supper, which is the Passover meal that, remember the disciples were preparing, now they've come to eat it. But this isn't any old Passover meal. Jesus takes this important reminder of God's favour and promises over his people and transforms it into a covenant meal that centres on his own sacrificial death. Again, Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for what happens next. But more than that, he's teaching them both the significance of it and how it will be celebrated, administered and communicated to every future generation. To help us understand what's happening here, we need to understand the link between the Passover lamb and Jesus himself. And to do that, let's zoom out and look at the key parallels between the Passover and Jesus' sacrifice. The history of the Passover is rooted in a dark dark time for the nation of Israel, a time when they were slaves to the powerful nation of Egypt. Those of you who 
Uh, we're here for our Exodus sermon series. We'll have uh, picked a lot of that up. But God heard the cries of his people and he promised to free them from that slavery. So he raised up a man named Moses to lead his people and to intercede on their behalf before Pharaoh. But the Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. So what followed was God's divine punishment upon them. His just wrath was unleashed in a series of 10 plagues, culminating in the final plague, the death of all the firstborn in the land. Only the people of God were spared from his wrath. Because on his instructions, they were separated and marked out from all the Egyptians by the blood of a lamb, which was killed in their place. Its blood was smeared on the doorposts as a sign that they had taken refuge in the one true God. With the result that the just judgment of God passed over them entirely, didn't touch them at all. And this was God's grace to them. They didn't do anything to deserve this favor from God. He initiated it. He provided a means or or a mechanism to facilitate it with the lamb. And he was faithful to his promise not to harm those that sheltered under the blood of the lamb. Do you see where I'm going with this? Fast forward to Jesus' death on the cross. And we can see that we are now separated and marked out for God from amongst all the other peoples of the earth and we're marked out by the blood of our Passover lamb Jesus who was killed in our place our place so that the just judgment of God might pass over us and not touch us at all and this is God's grace to us he initiated it even before the foundation of the world He provided the means and the mechanism to facilitate it through the person and work of Jesus. And he will be faithful to his promise not to harm those who shelter under the blood and covering of Jesus. This is the beautiful truth that's represented in that communion meal, which is a testament to both the the love and the faithfulness of God. As Jesus' body was broken and his blood spilled, on the cross, the bread and the wine remind us that our sins are forgiven and our salvation is assured by no other name than in the name of Jesus. If I could have the worship team up. We're going to move into a time of worship in a moment where we're going to take communion together as part of that worship. But just as Jesus prepared the disciples for what was about to happen next, as I was preparing this message, I felt that God wanted to prepare our hearts this morning for what's next for us as individuals. And I think he wants to look at three things. I think he wants to look at worship, submitting your heart, and restoring the joy of your salvation. Let's look at worship. How are you doing with your worship to God. I touched on that earlier. Is your life a beautiful aroma that pleases King Jesus today? Are you like the woman who holds nothing back? Is your worship lavish, unrestrained and wholehearted? Do you disregard the cost 
despite how foolish it looks to those around you. I believe God wants to break some flasks of his own, even this morning. He wants to anoint you with his spirit so that you can be free to worship him in the way he deserves, with wholeheartedness, with everything that you've got. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond in a moment. Let's look at submitting your heart to God. I believe some of us need to come before God and submit our hearts to him afresh, even this morning. We need to ask him the humble, fearful, truthful question. Is it me, Lord? Is there sin in my heart that needs to be dealt with? The worst thing we can say as a Christian is it'll never be me. I'd never do that thing because it creates a blind spot that the devil can use to his advantage. It's good to recognise the frailty, fickleness and sinfulness of human nature so that we can welcome Jesus in to secure and strengthen and shore up our hearts so that we can be alert, watchful and on the lookout for snares and traps of sin. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to lay your heart bare before him again. We need to do that regularly. It's a good thing to do. The joy of our salvation, Psalm 51, 12. The cry of David's heart is, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And I do believe there are some people here who have lost or forgotten the joy of their salvation, either through being worn down by the world or because of sin. And I believe Jesus wants to restore that to you this morning. If you call Jesus Lord, I want to tell you that you are forgiven. You are made right with God. Your salvation is certain because the God who rescued the Israelites from slavery and then preserved them from his judgment is the same God who has rescued you from slavery to sin. And it's the same God that promises that his judgment will pass over you, even as he promises you an eternal life with him, all because of the precious blood of Jesus spilled in your place for your sin. As we come to the communion table then, as part of this worship time, let's make sure we're worshiping Jesus with all we've got. Let's submit our hearts to him afresh and let's rejoice in the joy of our salvation. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, feel free not to take communion. But if you've got questions, you can chat to anybody here. But I'll say one thing to you. Yes, you can take refuge under the blood of Jesus too. And we, anyone here would love to chat to you about that. So I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. And feel free as part of that worship to go and take communion together. If you see someone on their own, why don't you grab them and say, hey, come and take communion with me. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that your great and mighty plan before the foundation of the world was to send your son to die in my place for my sin that I might be given new life, eternal life in you with my sins forgiven and my salvation assured. Holy Spirit, I pray would you come and break those jars this morning over people. You would free them to worship you with all of their being, their whole selves, their whole lives. 
I pray you would stir people's hearts to lay themselves open and bare to you again. Say, is it me, Jesus? What, what, what do I need to do differently? What do I need to change? And I pray, Lord, would you restore the joy of your salvation to my brothers and sisters who are feeling low and disconnected this morning. God, I thank you for the joy of my salvation. And I pray our hearts would turn to you in worship now as we come to this communion table, which reminds us of your sacrifice, King Jesus. We bless you and we give you glory. And we thank you for your life laid down in exchange for ours. Thank you that you atoned for our sin by your blood. We worship you and we welcome you here this morning.